this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. All right, everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your host, John Pistelli, and I'm joined here by my producer, my collaborator, my impresario, Sam. And today we're going to talk about a number of different literary topics that will probably by the end uh, gather under the heading of Gnosticism. Um, but I think I think we'll get there. We'll get there slowly. It's a it's a it's a secret knowledge, a secret teaching to the teaching of Gnosticism, and so we don't want to uh, come upon it too suddenly. So, I think I'd like to start because I, I like a lot of people these days. I have the uh, mid to late twentieth century American literature on the brain. Uh, we're recording this podcast about, let's see, about. Two, three weeks after the death of Joan Didion, we're recording it about a week after a strange and possibly fake uh, controversy about Norman Mailer took a literary social media by storm. And Joan Didion, of course, was a champion of Mailer, an apologist of Mailer, a fan of Mailer. Um, and uh, and it's it's strange they're remembered differently. Uh, she was the the right winger, and he was the leftist of the of the bunch. But she's hailed by today's left as a, a heroine of letters, and he is a uh, brawling his, his brawling machismo is dismissed as outdated. A chauvinist pig. A chauvinist pig. Uh, you've probably seen the video of. Cynthia Ozick asking him about dipping his balls in the ink because he talked about writing with the phallus, more or less. Um, I remember a video of him. At, it almost looked like a legal setting, but he, like he was in a tribunal of feminists in the right. open, and he's like, he's like, who am I to blame? Me with my modest-sized Jewish penis? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Same event, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's also Susan Pretty, Sontag yeah, legendary. was there. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm thinking about now, and um, it's it's striking. It's interesting. It's almost as if, <clears throat> like, you know, they talked about Mailer being canceled, and then Rouse Douthat, the resident Catholic conservative of the New York Times opinion page, wrote an uh, interesting editorial saying uh, that it's it's sort of small business to cancel Norman Mailer. They should cancel Joan Didion for her right wing opinions. And he he sort of allowed that there's a superficial left move later in her work, but he said that her earlier right-wing work is better, which I think is probably true, um, and also that there's more continuities than you might think. Um, uh, but anyway, just uh, I think what's happening is nobody's really being canceled. I think all these people are being talked about, and I think that we're really starting to see in ways that were probably invisible 20 years ago when most of these people were still alive and at the end of their lives and beginning to die. We're beginning to see the kind of richness of mid-century post-war American literature um, that was something that I didn't, what well, certainly didn't take any interest in when I was when I was a college student, for instance. None of these names meant anything to me. That was 
my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation. I was more interested in older writers or newer writers. Um, but uh, but Mailer, Mailer's belief in uh, this kind of inner self, his his hatred of repression, and then on the other hand, Didion's belief in what she called self-respect, but which is almost the opposite principle, which is that you you have this sort of minimal self that that bears up with a certain dignity under the the affronts of reality, and I think that Mailer versus Didion is an interesting. Uh, interesting example of the Gnostic versus the non-Gnostic mm. sensibility. Romantic versus classical? I think you could say that. Yeah, I don't know if Didion would describe herself as classical, but I think she certainly had that sense of form and restraint and uh, control of the emotions that accompanies the classical temperament. One time I found a textbook in a little free library, a world literature textbook from 1940-something or 50-something. Of course, world literature back then didn't extend beyond Europe uh, and didn't really include women either. But nevertheless, it was interestingly structured because it was divided into realists, romantics, and classicists. And these were not historical distinctions. These were distinctions of temperament. And so there are writers from every historical period in both categories. And so I think that, um, you know, Euripides was a realist and, uh, nice. and uh, Ovid was a romantic and, and, uh, and Homer was a classicist or something like that. And so I think that's a really useful way of thinking about it. These are sort of temperaments or, or, or archetypes, if you want. Or humors. Humors, yes, <laughs> that cut across time periods and historical epochs. And yeah. uh, you can sort of imagine all the writers uh, in a room brawling. Mm. <laughs> Mailer would win. Mailer would. He would try. Yeah. Uh, we'd have to make sure he wasn't armed. Yeah. Uh, but Didion might win. Yeah, no, Didion might. Uh, Bring out a small <laughs> revolver out yeah. of her. <laughs> right, small arm. Yeah. <laughs> Light up a cigarette, clear the room. <laughs> I wonder if she ever carried a weapon. She seems like somebody that would. Mm. Seems like a Second Amendment kind of lady, mm-hmm. but I don't know for sure. So you're, you're um, noticing... Um, the, a disconnect between the, the contemporary perception of Didion and who Didion was and how she wrote what she cared about? Yeah, and I, I think it's maybe um, being corrected now after her death, but I think there was this, when she became famous sort of the second time with the grief memoir, The Year of Magical Thinking, which as as a book is, I think, only okay, if I, if I may say that, um, and then from then she became this kind of icon, particularly to journalists, um, and particularly I think to younger female journalists, which you know understandably. And you can't dismiss the the iconicity of her, the image, the cool, the the. Um, I think in one of the uh, obituaries that was published in I think it was in Unheard.com, somebody said she wasn't beautiful, and I thought that was strange. I thought she was beautiful or, or hot or attractive. I don't know what word you'd use, but she had an image. She relied in a certain way on her image in a way that the same way Mailer did. They were celebrities as well as intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And um, But I think the the early work that was so conservative, you know, the anti-abortion novel, play it as it lays, the uh, denunciation of the hippies and the leftists, the 
the, the slouching towards Bethlehem, slouching towards Bethlehem, the tribute to John Wayne, mm-hmm. the disparagement of the you know of uh, the Black Panthers in in the White Album, um, and then the way that there that's continuous. There's a continuous conservative sensibility, as Ross Douthat accurately says, that when she turns against the political right in this country, it's precisely because she thinks they're vulgar, millenary, and utopian. Uh, and possessed of what she called fixed ideas. Hmm. And she didn't like Obama when he came along. She, I mean, she might have liked him, but she thought the youth movement behind him was, um, she thought it was kind of pathetic She, as she complained, you know, uh, about the hope slogan she thought was, was childish. So, Well, I know that she did inspire a generation of female writers and journalists in particular for her essays in nonfiction and people who um, who value and pursue um, the literary aspects of journalism, a way to write with subjectivity in nonfiction form and magazine form. She was a master at that. She wasn't alone in her generation. But I've had run-ins with, with women writers from that generation, and they're not selective about Didion being a champion and, um, from that time. They, they almost always... And I was raised by one. They almost always include Mailer and Hunter S. Thompson and that entire culture as like some sort of an ideal about how to write. And that ideal is not pursued today among nonfiction writers. Or it's it, it seems to be lost in sort of an identitarian um, value system. Well, yeah, I think it's it's sort of if I could say this, decayed into the into the oversharing economy, the um, the sort of th- the personality that was to be a feature of style. And d- I mean, don't get me wrong. I I actually never really read Mailer until until recently, and I've just been reading the Armies of the Night, and there's just a description of him peeing on the floor. So he certainly overshared <laughs> as well. Um, but <laughs> but the whole performance is the performance of an identity, whereas I think for Didion who certainly put herself on the page, um, and sometimes in interesting ways, sort of staging her own vulnerability. But it was, the style was really the performance of the writer, and that's what you see in Mailer and Didion and Tom Wolfe. I've never actually read Hunter S. Thompson for whatever reason, but... He was beloved in my counterculture youth. Mm-hmm. Did you like him? Do you read him? Yeah, I did like him. I like his work on Hell's Angels and... Fear and loathing, you know, enabling a an entire generation of young drug seekers, and mm-hmm. and the Gonzo approach allowed him to get after subjects in a way that I think today maybe a, a person who 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 takes cues from that generation, where where it was like a type of democratic liberal press towards a freedom of speech and like an opening of culture, I would say that's. That's probably it's probably accurate, but someone like Matt Taibbi mm-hmm. is um, yeah is an ac- acolyte, <clears throat> right? And I think those guys, the the um, the exile guys, him and Mark Ames, and um, one or two others who started that paper in Russia twenty years ago, I think they definitely had that kind of a a, a new journalist attitude. Sometimes in ways that got them in trouble. Mm-hmm. They're still getting pilloried for some yeah. of the Mailer-esque. Uh, sexual remarks they made at the time yeah like if you're gonna write you might as well write (laughs) yeah 
But you're saying you don't you don't often like in your in your nonfiction you don't often like an overflowering of style. Right. Well, I think what I was mentioning there, and so that that will bring me back to the fact that I my 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 contribution to Joan Didion studies is that I think we need to tear her away from the journalists, like your mother. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, no, Good I'm luck. joking. But um, but I think her novels are underrated. Um, I think her fiction is superb, um, particularly played as it lays. I've only read. She's written five novels. I only read three. Um, but I, in my defense, I don't think anybody reads the first one. But um, but no, I think that there's um, – I do get annoyed with the creative nonfiction uh, movement that's infiltrated all forms of nonfiction. Like I read uh, Jill Lepore, her one-volume History of the United States, These Truths, which is a good book. I, I recommend it actually. Um, I think it's it's sort of misunderstood by um, – well, no, maybe it's not misunderstood. Um, I was going to say that it's misunderstood ideologically, but I think it's only by the right because they were like, this is woke progressive trash, but it's not. It's a moderate liberal. But I think she was attacked for being a moderate liberal in the leftist press. But anyway, my point – she is she is a moderate liberal, whatever. You can like that or dislike it. But what I found frustrating about that book was the many moments where – she was like, you know, um, John Brown had eyebrows like smoke. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, I just, what? I'm just here for the facts, lady. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I don't need all of these flourishes. You could have cut the book by 100 pages if you take yeah. out some of these flourishes. So I do think that maybe there's been too much of a blurring of the boundary between fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And maybe nonfiction writers could pursue more of an ideal of, uh, of, of clarity. Yeah, and there's one of the great American genres of the novel, um, historical fiction, mm -hmm. which is available for that type of expression of, of style and tone. Right. Um, which is maybe one of our greatest forms. Yeah. Hawthorne. Hawthorne. Uh, Melville. And yeah. Cooper. Pinchon. Yeah. yeah, Washington Irving, mm. Gore Vidal. So what about so you so you you were talking about um, Gnosticism, <laughs> right? Yes, I got a long way. My brain had developed into a small manufactory of psychic particles, 
brain had developed into a small manufacturing of psychic particles, pellets, rockets the length of a pin, planets the size of your eye's pupil when the iris closes down. A term, which is a term that, you know, for me, I've tried to understand it. My, uh, the only thing I know concretely is that the Jesuits tried to cut their throats in the 15th century and largely succeeded. But they seemed yeah. to the Gnostic and the Gnostic ideas seemed to have a way of reproducing and sticking around. And maybe Gnosticism is taking a form now that's more um, uh, that's more influential than maybe people know. Is that is that your Bottom line? It is, yeah. And it's not original. I'm getting it from, you know, Harold Bloom and Elaine Pagels and other people. Um, But, um, and just, you know, for our listeners, to define Gnosticism briefly. um, And it's hard to define because it's not just one thing. And if you read uh, a popular introduction like Elaine Pagels' The Gnostic Gospels, you'll find that the writers of those books will say right up front that there's no one I don't even know how to express it so there's no one thing you'd call Gnosticism or there's no one like there's a book that you can buy called the Gnostic Bible that contains a lot of Gnostic scriptures but there is no Gnostic Bible because the point is that in the early development of Christianity and there's also a parallel development in in Judaism as well, but let's just stick to Christianity for a minute. In the early development of Christianity, there were a lot of different interpretations of what Christianity was and what it meant and what the life of Christ was and what that meant. And gradually over a couple centuries, one tendency that became orthodoxy won out and managed to stigmatize and suppress this other set of tendencies that I think it labeled Gnosticism. And interestingly, the Gnostic texts were lost for much of Western history. And most of the places that um, great Western writers like Dante or Milton or Blake would have known about Gnosticism was through quotations in the writings of the church fathers denouncing them, quoting them as like the forensic exhibit of a mistaken theology. And yet it still sparked this imagination down through the centuries. And then the key event in the in the middle of the 20th century was the discovery of the um, a trove of writings at Nag Hammadi, um, which uh, happened in 1945. Um, so this is in Egypt, Nag Hammadi. And they find this trove of early Christian writings and... I think this is a remarkable event, this happening in 1945. It's sort of, you know, it's just after the war. It's just on the eve of the technological revolution that's going to come out in the in the late 40s uh, that will carry through the Cold War. You have the development of nuclear weapons. You have the discovery of the transistor, which our occult friends think was... Theory of relativity. Theory of relativity, which was a little bit before... Um, yeah, so it's one of the 20th century's big discoveries is this rediscovery of Gnosticism that once you know what it is, then you begin to read it back through Western cultural history and you see, oh, that's what was happening in, in Nietzsche and Hegel and in Blake and Dostoevsky in all these different ways. Um, so what is Gnosticism for our listeners? Um, 
the briefest definition is, and where it differs from what becomes Christian orthodoxy, is that Gnosticism posits that this world, um, nature, us, our bodies, the material world, wasn't created by the real God. It wasn't created by God, God who's all good, who's all knowing. It was created by this intermediate figure they call a demiurge, which literally means, um, and for some reason I find this funny, it literally means public worker. <laughs> so you can imagine <laughs> sort of a bumbling uh, bureaucrat or something. Um, <laughs> Dr. Fauci. Um, but, <laughs> um, but this sort of bungling or evil figure created the world as this kind of botched creation. And the only... And, and, and he was able to do that when the real God withdrew part of himself and left a space for this creation to occur. But the only part of the real God that remains is this sort of inner divinity that we each have in ourselves. It's not in nature. You know, in, in Christian orthodoxy, nature, while fallen, is good. It's the work of God. And it's goodness the, uh, the the sunshine, the grass, the the crops, the harvest, these are signs of God's God's grace and love. Um, in the Gnostic world, no, nature is evil. Nature is, um, to quote Lars von Trier's film, uh, nature is Satan's church. Nature is this place of evil where the only good thing is this inner divinity in each of us, this uh, this kind of inner inner light. That we that we have to uh, that we have to commune with, and that's where the name comes from, because it's gnosis, uh, g n o s i s, which is Greek for knowledge, but it essentially means this secret knowledge that you have of the true divine, and um, and the Gnostics thus, and you can see what Elaine Pagel says is she wants in some ways to defend the Gnostics because there's kind of an anarchist bent to them and like a proto-feminist bent to them because we all have these this inner light. And for instance, there's a Gnostic... And you're not determined by nature. You're not determined by nature. So it just fits right in with that feminist idea that biology isn't destiny, um, this kind of anti-Aristotelian, anti-natural law attitude. And But Pagel says you can... She says they were bound to lose in the contest with what became Christian orthodoxy because just by their nature, they weren't going to be able to mount an organized fight uh, because they were anarchic in that way. And so it almost had to be this underground current. Um, now, there were episodes in European history, and I think you mentioned the uh, the uh, the uh, the Albigensian Crusade. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, um, which is when the Cathars in uh, in France were killed. Um, so the Cathars were a group of uh, people living in France, they're sometimes called the the Albigensian, uh, named for the city of Albi where they lived, and they developed a set of Gnostic ideas that was very puritanical um, in the sense of, um, you know, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to have sex. You're not supposed to sort of enjoy food. All worldly enjoyments are corrupt because the world is corrupt. The world is the, the, the bungled work of the demiurge. And so the Albigensian or the Cathar heresy flourishes there in the 13th century until there's a, a crusade of the Catholic Church to wipe them out. And there 
they're wiped out at that point. Um, but then the sort of irony is one way of looking at the 20th century is the revenge of Gnosticism on several different levels. Because when you have movements like um, uh, communism, you have movements like fascism, you have movements like psychoanalysis, these things that are you know officially at, at odds with each other, but nevertheless, they all have some element in common that there's some kind of secret teaching, and that secret teaching will, will transform the world and, and bring about a better world and get us in touch with, with some kind of, you know, what Hegel, who was reading Gnostic sources, called what he called absolute knowledge or, or this knowledge of the self, as Freud or Jung would proclaim. So the 20th century is the Gnostic century. What, do you think that those movements were conscious of of Gnosticism? Some of them were. Yeah. I mean, I think I think Hegel knew what his sources were. He was drawing on Protestant mysticism that had roots in Gnosticism. Um, Jung certainly knew, and I think was doing it consciously. Um, Freud, maybe I don't know. How it's much so Freud, it's but. so blasphemous that, in fact, logos or the word of God is nothing but a bumbling. Like wicked, de like demiurge, right? Well, and that's an interesting thing too that that uh, that Pagel says is that their vision of Jesus mm -hmm. was that he was just almost this hologram emanation of the alien god, and he wasn't crucified in the flesh. And she said that's another thing that sort of doomed them to lose, because um, the strength of Christianity was the figure of this suffering human being. Yeah, here, here's from your blog. JohnPastelli.com. Um, given Gnosticism's dismissal of nature and the body, Gnostics de-emphasize the figure of Christ as incarnate God, a God who is also flesh and who died a real death. For Gnosticism, Christ is rather a kind of alien emissary modeling the ascended human rather than the descended deity. Quote, Jesus was not a human being at all. Instead, he was a spiritual being who adapted himself to human perception, Pagel, um, Pagels explains. Right. Yeah, so this sort of, um, it's almost a demotion of Jesus in a way. I mean, they probably didn't think of it that way, but um, but the idea of this suffering figure that, that incarnates your sufferings, that God suffered as you suffered, that's the power of Christianity. And when you take that out... Um, I think it probably does lose something and loses its ability to be a mass movement in that way. Well, I'm interested in what you were saying about the 20th century, and I want to hear more about that. But I'm also wondering about, because the way you described their their views of nature, it almost sounded like, like Protestant sects of Christianity that weren't as heretical and that viewed nature with great distrust and like came over to the United States and looked at the forest and saw the devil point blank and there's something to be civilized through a type of knowledge and through a type of inner development. I guess it is kind of a, pro is it a Protestant? I mean, it's older than, than European Protestantism, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. But it, there's some similarities. Yeah. And I, I think there are definitely sort of, maybe this is the time to say that the way to think about it is, um, as a tendency and it's a tendency within 
monotheistic thinking that's going to be hard to get rid of. So there is, you know, there are certain Catholic thinkers that would just say, oh, Protestantism just is Gnosticism uh, because they just, it's just them and God. And they say, oh, we don't need the church. We don't care about nature. But then if you read, if you read a Catholic writer like G.K. Chesterton, you get the impression that he thinks somebody like St. Augustine was a Gnostic. Um, and Augustine started as a Manichaean, which is kind of similar. Manichaeans believe in the believed. I don't know if there's still Manichaeans, but they believed in the world being divided between a good principle and an evil principle. And I think Chesterton probably thought that Augustine carried that into his Christian theology in ways that would go on to influence Protestantism um, with an influence on, and then once you get to the American settlers, the Calvinists, the Puritans, when they speak of man's total depravity and things like that, it's definitely a Gnostic undercurrent. Um, but, you know, to move from the sublime to the absurd, one of the things I find attractive about blaming the horrors of the 20th century and Gnosticism um, is because it is a tendency that we almost all have if we're somehow heirs to monotheism because there there are Gnostic currents in Judaism and Islam as well in in the Kabbalah for Judaism and I think aspects of Sufism and Islam so if you're um, if you're a monotheist at all you probably have this tendency or even the kind of secularists or atheists we have in the West who are so immersed in a, in a monotheistic way of thinking that they're essentially still part of a Christian or Jewish or Islamic culture um, <laughs> my point though is Everybody's looking for someone to blame for modernity, and this comes out. In you can blame Machiavelli, <laughs> right? Some people say um, Machiavelli is that the. Uh, do the Straussians blame Machiavelli? No, the Straussians credit Machiavelli. Credit Machiavelli, <laughs> <laughs> right? You can never tell with them because of the esotericism. Yeah. I um, wish I wish that I can understand what they're saying, but <laughs> I just. I can't, I don't know. You it's, might almost say they have a secret knowledge. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, The Gnostic Straussians? The Gnostic Straussians. They would probably admit to that, but they would only admit to that with each other. They right. They would never admit it to a guy like me. Right. Well, and the thing is, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a lot of it comes from Plato, too. I mean, a lot of, if you hear the description of Gnosticism, it sounds just like Plato. Um, so... Like a Socratic irony? Well, more the idea of the forms. Or the forms. In this world, is just degraded copy. The material world is a degraded copy of this ideal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so foundational. Yeah. So we can't get away from Gnosticism. No. I mean, it it's, it's starts there, and and then it, it goes all the way to, like, the adolescent rebelling against an imposed religion. Exactly. I mean, there's something yeah. fundamental yeah. In the West. Right. And I wouldn't there are people that there are people that champion it who love it, and there are people who hate it and who blame everything on it. And I think it's ineradicable, so we need to work with it. Um we need to make sure we're It's like COVID. <laughs> right, right. It's endemic Gnosticism. Gnosticism is like COVID. Yes, we just need some common sense precautionary mitigation <laughs> strategies. <laughs> um, Maybe we can use it to bludgeon our, our political enemies. <laughs> right. And there are people, I mean, that's a right-wing tactic. Um, it go, you know, it goes back to Eric Vogelin and then the vulgarization of his ideas on the John Birch Society. Um, 
in a certain style of libertarianism. Maybe our listeners are familiar with the phrase immunitize the eschaton. So that's the idea that um, leftists, from this point of view, are Gnostics who want to bring onto Earth the kind of end time revelation. They want to make imminent, make within the world, the eschaton, the end of the world. And so that's a way of kind of accusing leftists of being Gnostics. And some leftists accept it. I mean, if you read um, what I'm always telling people to read, which is Toni Morrison's most underrated novel called Paradise, it begins with an uncredited epigraph. I don't know what she was thinking there. Uh, an unattributed epigraph from a Gnostic gospel spoken by a female deity. And the point of the novel is, I think, precisely to... Um, advocate for a kind of a, a feminist Gnosticism. And at the time she wrote it, I read that she was having lunch every day with Elaine Pagels at Princeton. Um, Interesting. So, so some people embrace it, some people hate it. And, and I think now my, my, the thing I was, as I was saying before about blaming Gnosticism rather than any one group is that it, you know, it gets you out of this, um, troglodytic, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, you have the anti-Semitic narrative. Well, the Jews are to blame for modernity. And then you have a certain Catholic narrative or a certain neo-reactionary narrative today that says the Protestants are to blame. And then you have people who will blame, find a way to blame, the, you know, the Catholics, the Jesuits, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, the lizards. Um, and it just becomes this endless game of displacement of who is to blame for all these failed attempts to bring paradise to earth that have caused such human hells. But really, the thing to blame is this ineradicable tendency within the psyche and we need to be aware of it and what it is and, and what is that tendency that tendency to feel so alienated to feel as heidegger says uh, he says we're thrown into the world this existential alienation confusion and then our desperate desire to overcome it through violence through uh, through transformation self-destruction self-destruction Destruction of, of the other. Eating too many donuts. <laughs> yes, that's more a, a sl falling back into it. <laughs> so I, I guess someone who really endorsed it was William Blake. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if he endorsed it by that name, but you would definitely, if for instance, Chesterton certainly included him among the Gnostics. And William William Blake is someone you've been writing about recently. Mm -hmm. So do you do you think about do you think about that um, that experimental romantic that man of kind of tool, dual times like he was a little early to to be in the Keats Wordsworth <laughs> Shelley movement. He was a little late f f for Milton Dryden. He's kind of in, kind of in betweener, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he, that goes with his misfit persona. Yeah. Um, and he was saying things poetically, and and um, um, he was leveling like kind of theological images that did that were kind of heretical but interesting, and had to do with the imagination and some type of dualistic demonry, and maybe maybe Gnosticism. Yeah, and I think that you see 
a trajectory in his work where he starts out as this figure. Um, and one of the things Chesterton says is the easiest way to understand him is that to say that he was against nature, that he didn't accept the authority of nature. And then he contrasted him with Wordsworth, who did. But that's, I think, a little simplistic if you read both of them. And by nature in like Blake's context, you mean that proliferation of science in the 17th century and the the altar of reason that was being erected in the English society. That's what he was really against. He thought the Enlightenment was essentially a way – and this is the Blake I most – endorse and think is most timely, which is the Blake that's against what I would broadly call the social credit score system, which is this is the Blake that says that what science is doing in promising to liberate us from dogmas, what it's actually doing is imprisoning us in the five senses and saying this is all you are. All you are is the material world, and as such, you can be sort of controlled by power. Um, and controlled by economics. That's where in his great poem, London, he says, I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow. And by chartered, I mean, first of all, it's a pun. I think partially what he means is charted. Everything's mapped out on the grid of the Enlightenment. But then chartered is also an economic concept that the, you know, the crown has granted permission for there to be a street here. And they've mm -hmm. even, you know, magnanimously granted permission mm -hmm. for there to be the river, that everything just falls into this grid. And, and that Blake, the Blake who complained of Newton's sleep and who wrote on the frontispiece of Francis Bacon's essays, good advice for Satan's kingdom. Uh, I think that's the Blake we need today, the Blake who, that's, that's, that's a good form of Gnosticism, a form of Gnosticism that tells us to beware of the way that authority is using our human nature against us mm -hmm. by, uh, by reducing. reducing, telling this is all you are and we're in charge of it. And the leftover scraps of that, of that imposition by science is, is what the imagination, or like they cut out like yeah, you cut out the transformative ability of the imagination. There's another line from Blake where he says, um, you know, somebody said to me, "When you see the sun, doesn't it look like a guinea in the sky?" And he says, "No, I see the angels singing hallelujah." You know, you cut out this visionary perception, this ability to transform the world through the imagination. And instead of just um, being controlled, you know, what science will do is it will freeze a status quo in the name of nature. Uh, we found the way things are, and now we're going to sort of optimize it for efficiency, and nothing's ever going to change after that. And he says you're neglecting that transformative power of the imagination. And in his early poetry... I think is very beautifully, uh, beautifully articulates a protest against that. And he, you know, you can tell it's Gnostic because he says in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell that, um, you know, that Milton, when Milton wrote about Satan, he was of the devil's party without knowing it because Satan was on the side of energy and that the sort of governor of the Hebrew Bible is, is the devil and the true God is something mm -hmm. else. And Satan is the most attractive and somewhat sympathetic character in that poem. Yes. Yeah. And Milton didn't even know that he was rendering that. 
according, according to, to Blake. Blake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's other ways of reading Paradise Lost if if you want, but uh, but that one's that one's sti- kind of fun and stimulating. And that's the one that's stuck. Yeah. I mean, that's the one people that's, know. That one's kind of like rock and it's like rock and roll, <laughs> right. like Black Sabbath. It's like ah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, I would say that Blake veers. I mean, I hesitate to say this because I don't fully understand his later writings, but insofar as I do understand them, he kind of veers into maybe the bad Gnosticism in certain ways. Um, because his early poetry, and let me preface this by saying I'm not saying that you know easy to read poetry is better than difficult to read poetry. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but what I am saying is he eventually creates a very complex private myth to express this with his own characters of his own creation with sort of pseudo Hebrew, pseudo, pseudo Hebrew names. Um, he's sort of writing his own Gnostic gospels in poems like Milton and Jerusalem. And and he, that's very much what Milton was doing was using myth as a way to explain his own self-consciousness in a particular historical period. But, but, um, evoking like enduring his- historical truth through myth like Samson Agonistes as mm-hmm. a way to um, as a way to uh, uh, depict Cromwell in the First Republic and as a Republican and as a, a writer for the state like go ahead I guess I think the the difference is that Milton used myths that everybody already knew he didn't make his own it's because Milton was a better poet than Blake. Maybe, uh, yeah. I mean, th- I think the analog to Blake might be Dante, because you read the Divine Comedy. I'm trying to imagine the first readers of the Divine Comedy, and I imagine them thinking, okay, we have Virgil, okay, I recognize this Pope. But then Beatrice, who who is Beatrice, and why is she at the right hand of heaven? Like, he just elevates this chick he fell in love with because he saw her across the street into this incredible mythological a mythmaker yeah and i think blake does something similar but he it's interesting you mentioned he's this kind of intermediate historical figure because you know one um one constituency that loves blake and sees him as their forerunner comic book writers and artists because of the way that he sort of self-published these illustrated myths yeah Um, that weren't the illustrations weren't that good uh, yeah they're all right i like them they're an acquired taste yeah yeah. um and there's a way in which he is kind of designing this like superhero universe absolutely you know luva tirza rintra uthun and uh you know (laughs) loss and urizen and uh enitharmon and all these people um but it's very hermetic. It's very it's Gnostic in that etymological sense that only he knows. Um, and you read, you know, Blake has generated this immense body of scholarship, especially since the uh, since the since the fifties or sixties when Northrop Fry and Harold Bloom got into the game. And it it feels very solid because they'll provide like charts and graphs. But when you actually read the poems. There's no signposts. You know, it's very unclear. It's a dream. Uh, I think he inspired Finnegan's Wake in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's okay, but Jerusalem is very long. It's a very long text to not understand. Uh, and uh, and I think his earlier poetry 
was more accommodating. It was more open. It was it was less Gnostic in that bad sense. There's more to share. Like there's <laughs> which uh, which poem is a favorite of yours? I like. Um, I mean, this is a maybe kind of basic basic white girl, but um, but I like the Garden of Love uh, from the Songs of Experience. Um, maybe I'll just read it. Yeah. Okay. So the Garden of Love. I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned the Garden of Love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. It's very romantic. Yeah, and I think what I like about this poem is he hasn't turned against nature yet. Um, he says, you know, I used to play on the green there was used to be flowers. I have this desire, which is the desire of love, which is sex, but I think more than sex, I think it's the full the full thing eros means. Um, but then in the in the later prophetic books, you start to get the sense. And I know you know the critics say, well, everything gets integrated in the end into some kind of Jungian whole or something. But I feel like there's a, a turning away from from all of that. Um, when when Milton returns to Earth in his epic poem Milton to atone for having sided with the, the wrong god in Paradise Lost, uh, Milton says, I have come to wash off the not human. And I that that sounds attractive and it reminds me, you know, Marxists would always say, I don't, I don't know if Marx himself said this, but Marxists would say something like, you know, we're, we're not human yet. Human history hasn't begun. Human history will begin after class society. Mm. And I think that's a very dangerous way of thinking. I think actually we need to accept work with the not human. I think it, this desire to exterminate it will... Yeah, it, it sounds like an intensification of discontent. Yeah. To to generate revolutionary conditions. Yeah. Um, someone wise once told me that if you wanted to start a revolution, you would you would inflame, incite, and um, aggravate opposing sides to such extremes that the conditions would become intolerable. Yeah. It's like materiality, body, consumption, work becomes a corruption and an error. Right. And needs like a divine, unprecedented knowledge to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, just dangerous. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of sounding like a bourgeois milk toast moderate. Yes, it's dangerous. Mm. Um, There's nothing milk toast about moderates, right? That's a hard-earned <laughs> position these days. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, Maybe we get Barry Weiss on the pod. Yeah, Barry Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. You're gonna say something. Um, whenever I see a Barry Weiss thumbnail on YouTube, I, it always makes me happy. I never really click on it, but yeah, I'm like oh, no, I love her. She's uh, she's talking to some conservatives. Yeah, no, she's from. We're both the exact same age and both from Pittsburgh. Nice. So I feel a certain kinship with Barry. Nice. <laughs> well, can I read you my favorite William Blake poem? Please. Okay. A poison tree. 
I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears. And I sunned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful vials. And it grew both day and night till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's a good... Um, it's honest. Yeah. And you can't overstate how much Blake anticipates Freud, Marx, Jung, Nietzsche um, throughout his work. It's just remarkable. Can you try overstating it? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps he had supernatural inspiration. Um, but that is so, you know, the fruits of, of repression and... Um, Envy and Envy Cain and Abel Yeah Yeah We have the garden again Instead of smashing him with a rock In a masculine sense You poison his fair Yeah I mean It's interesting to Translate that poem Into a concrete situation Like what What would that actually look like I don't know What are some other great poisonings In English literature history I I don't know I was thinking maybe this maybe is kind of a vulgar example, but you know how the Hillary Clinton campaign strategically wanted Donald Trump to be the nominee in 2016 <laughs> because they thought he would be easier to defeat? Unelectable. Yeah, I think that's maybe what they were trying to do. <laughs> 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 trying to poison their foe that way. Right. Uh, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So Blake, Blake, um, and why, why today? Can you? So you were talking about twentieth century movements that were influenced by Nazism. What about twenty first century movements? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and they're, um, I mean, it's first of all, it's hard to know what they, the twenty first century movements all are, but certainly the identity politics stuff um, is has a Gnostic bent, this idea of, um, of, of, of sort of to be a full person is to fully inhabit this metaphysical identity. Um, to go back to Toni Morrison again, she once described one of her characters as metaphysically black and this idea of a, a blackness or whiteness on the other side, um, that is not kind of materially, embodied or or embodied in certain concrete traditions but is almost something that you you either have it or you don't um i think that's a gnostic movement i think that has elements of gnosticism i think um this is an even edgier topic than the one we we're just talking about but obviously aspects of gender ideology that um that your gender identity is something completely separate from the body you're born into such that it may require radical medical intervention to bring that body back into line um or it can just fro float free of the body entirely that um you know defenses of the of terms like um male lesbian or, or things like this that you sometimes see 
I think is 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 entirely gnostic and I'm not it's not it's not gnostic I'm not uh, one of these people I'm not saying gnostic doesn't equal bad but I think that we need to know know what it is and you know there's a spectrum of knowing about it and a spectrum of using it to explain current conditions and I guess there'd be like you know totally knowing about it and then like totally explaining where we are today through it would be like a hundred percent explanation of where are you like to what what portion do you attribute uh narcissism to the our our outcomes or our ways of thinking is it beyond 50 percent or is it a fundamental science like like power is for nietzsche i don't know yet i'm still thinking my way through that is that an important question do you think for where we are yeah, I do. Because you write about it and think about it. I do, yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I should say I'm not being original. I'm, I'm clued in by all these other writers who say this. Um, I mentioned Bloom. I mentioned Pagels. John Gray is another. Um, I do think it's important. I think it, it's interesting to think that it could be something that fundamental, like like power for Nietzsche. Um and I, I don't know fully. I think that the interesting thing is, remember when I started out praising Blake by saying that his critique of science was was the Blake we need today in the era of the social credit score? Mm-hmm. The danger is that, you know, I think mystics and occultists always talk about how opposites become each other. Ah. I think Gnosticism taken to its extreme brings about the world Blake fears because it's the human mind taking total control of the material world as we see it in transhumanism and these fantasies of the, the Neuralink and the, the metaverse. Um, and so I think maybe I'm just echoing, speaking of bourgeois moderates, like somebody like Albert Camus uh, says in the rebel that the most important thing we need to do is to read all of these thinkers that he didn't call Gnostics, but everybody, other people would like Nietzsche and Marx and even Saad. And he said, they each correct each other because they each have a different take on what the fundamental logic of the universe is. But if you read them all together, they remind each other that they're not gods. And we need to be reminded that we're not gods. Unless we are, but uh, but I think the danger is, uh, I like the idea that every man is a god, every man or woman or whatever. Uh, but I don't like the idea that that some are and others aren't, especially if I'm not, and I'm going to be controlled from their computer. Definitely, and I think the intensity of that those ideologies re- rely on that esotericism. Yeah, that's very powerful. Not only to recruit, but also to intimidate. Exactly. Um, but one group of people that, that you know, embraced me as a baby and you as a baby who, who stand opposed to the, these, this tendency is the Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, for me, like, Catholic, Catholics, you know... They're they're always ready to rumble, <laughs> right? Yeah. And what do they? How do they step to this this heresy in I, their minds? I think that they can be a helpful corrective against 
particularly the transhumanist tendency tendency. And I think you're seeing that with writers like, um, James Poulos, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, who I think he's Catholic, um, who are talking about cyborg theocracy and that's what they're standing against is this cyborg theocracy. Um, there's other, I mean, I, I, I fear the Catholic integralists. I, I don't think. The Catholic integralists? Yeah, these are people like um, Sarab Amari or Adrian Vermeule or, um, well, I don't want to give labels to people that don't accept for themselves, but their idea, well, I don't know what to call them politely. They seem to me to be theocrats. They seem to me to, they want to restore what they call the natural law mm-hmm. and have the government enforce the natural law. I'm not in favor of that. You know what I think Catholicism's great contribution to Protestant societies was, was the aesthetic, um, because Catholics precisely have that anti-Gnostic tendency of interest in the flesh, mm-hmm. uh, interest in beauty. Where every molecule is 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 like a is a sacred shard in creation. Yes, there isn't this there isn't this idea of the alien god. You, you know, you're supposed to yeah. love. It's love not the just world. a clump of cells. It's human life. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. and that's um, you know we're we're not. Well, I don't, I'm sick of disavowing. We're just talking here. Um, so I was going to say we're not taking an anti-abortion position. Whatever, grow up. We're we're just having a conversation. But <laughs> we're berating our audience already. But. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's useful. The Catholic aestheticism that calls us to the beauty of this world and the beauty mm-hmm. of the flesh, mm-hmm. as I, I think, has a role to play in resisting the the worst elements of this tendency. It really some of the most powerful works of art are Catholic. Yeah, and some of the most beautiful moments in Protestant works of art are Catholic, like. like what? Um, when Hester Prynne first comes out to the scaffold and Hawthorne describes her as uh, looking like the Madonna and child, or when uh, Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch is crying in Rome the day after her wedding because something has gone wrong in the bedroom that she can't tell us about Mm because it's a Victorian novel, but uh, she's saying she can't assimilate the the enormity of Rome and it's at Christmas time and all she sees is a uh, red decorations going up like a, a disease of the retina. Uh, I find mm-hmm. Catholic imagery often stimulates this decadent, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this rich decadent idea as Camille Polly would say in Protestant art. So, mm. Yeah, that's, that's gorgeous. I think if we talked about un, uh, underworld last week, but um, Alma Edgar, Sister Edgar, mm-hmm. just what that novel needs, but really, and she she's always cleaning her hands and like you know yeah she's always concerned with the very the very smallest substances yeah um she'd do well in the pandemic world she would, but she's also the one who's most capable of an apprehension of of the glory and the redemptive beauty like in creation and even out of squalor and even out of deprivation and like people can transform that materiality into like, um, into miracles. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course, Delilah was doing that as, you know, I think that's his most Christian novel. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, but he was doing that the whole time. 
Mm-hmm. He was trying to take the 20th century and essentially transform it through that, I think maybe that, that Catholic orientation towards substance and beauty. Yeah. yeah, he's a great example of someone who I think perceives the Gnosticism of the technological society and plays this very interesting trick by instead of resisting it, well, this is very Dante-like, he goes deeper in until he finds the beauty of its materiality mm-hmm. instead of just turning his back on it. And I think that's a very beautiful gesture. Yeah. Yeah. But you were saying, you were saying that you were talking about Didion and you think Didion is, there's some anti-Gnostic effects of her work. Yeah. I think she, her highest value was sort of paying attention to the world as it is. Um, and sort of accepting that and writing about that with as much kind of style and grace as you can. Um, one of the texts when she died, people were sharing a lot of different essays she had written that maybe didn't work their way into her, any any of her books or anything. Um, and one of them was a review of a book by V.S. Naipaul, who I think she had a great affinity with as a journalist of a vaguely right-wing sensibility. And she praises him as, um, well, maybe I can just read this passage. So this is from the New York Review of Books, a review of one of Naipaul's works. She said, to complain, as Edward W. Said recently did, that there isn't real analysis in Naipaul's essays, only observation, is to ignore Naipaul's own point. He is a writer for whom the theoretical has no essential application, for whom a theory or an ideology is superficial to the phenomenon it attempts to describe, something no more than a scaffolding, something to be erected or demolished, something imposed, a word Naipaul often uses in relation to ideas on the glitter of the sea, the Congo clogged with hyacinth, the actual world. Hmm. So that, you know, the actual world could be an anti-Gnostic slogan. Hmm. Well, did you read anything on Twitter this week that lit you up? Um, That's a good question. Did I read anything on Twitter? I often respond to what I read on Twitter that lights me up on my... Grand Hotel Abyss Tumblr post. Um, oh, right. I'm scrolling through. So so Joyce Carol Oates got in trouble, as she often does on Twitter. She did again? Yeah, she's a troll. She's a shit poster. Um, and she, this was during the <laughs> quarrel about Norman Mailer. Uh-oh. Um, and people were talking about, of course, he stabbed his wife, his second or third wife, in a fit of uh, some kind of mania. And... He <laughs> well, that's what it was. He was, com- oh, yeah. he was committed. He was that's writing a technical term, deranged folks. Mania. <laughs> um, but he, uh, people were saying he should be whatever canceled or whatever for this lobotomized. lobotomized. And so Joyce Carol Oates responds to someone who said he was a fine writer but a bad husband. And Joyce Carol Oates said bad husband to whom? Like many oft-married men, Norman Mailer wound up finally with a much younger, adoring, and altogether quite wonderful wife, Norris Church, whom everyone liked. Womanizers all eventually wear out. It just takes time. And if you're lucky, you were the last wife. (laughs) 
So obviously wow. that's a ridiculous thing to say because, I mean, he almost killed his wife. So that's not the sense in which you'd want to be the last wife. Um, so, you know, as a, as a moral uh, recommendation, that's, that's not that – So what about this Joyce Carol Oates? I don't know what to think about Joyce Carol Oates. I like her in theory. I've only read a couple short novels and short stories. I never read one of her big books. I love her criticism. She's a great essayist. That yeah. is that is not uh, I haven't read any appreciated. of her. As a novelist, she's certainly I mean she seems to write in a in a trance. I don't know. It's very it doesn't feel labored over. It feels you know, she loves D.H. Lawrence. He, let's just put it that way. It's it's D.H. Lawrence. It's not it's not Flaubert Nabokov. Um, Flabaka. Flabaka. <laughs> 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 Joyce Car- so Joyce Carol Oates. She's assertive on Twitter. She's not afraid to pro- um, give a spicy take. No, she's you know in her eighties and she's uh, she's almost like the Trump of literary Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Because she always comes out with these amazing takes. Um, what did she say? And I mildly defended this point, though, because I said that, and I was quoting um, another Twitter celeb is David Reef, journalist, David Reef. Uh, who is the son of Susan Sontag. Oh, cool. And he was saying that the difference between the 21st century and the 20th century is like the difference between the 19th and the 18th, that the 18th centuries and the 20th, the 18th and 20th centuries were libertine. They were sexually liberated. They were, you know, full of mm. free speech. Um, the literature of both periods is completely filthy, very openly so. I mean, if you read 18th century poetry, it's, you know, Sir William, no, not, what's his name? John Rochester. Mm. Sir John Rochester. I don't know, just look him up. And he's, Big John Rochester. Big John, he's, and he, he writes. He's like, you know, oh, I was fucking her, you know, but it's all in this, like, heroic couplets. Mm-hmm. Um and then the 19th century sentimental is Victorian. And then the 20th century, you get Freud, and then you get the obscenity trials and Joyce and Lawrence, and you blow the doors off. You get off, the avant-garde. get the avant-garde. And now we're back into this moral lockdown. Um, and I was saying that Joyce Carol Oates, whether you like it or not, whether you want to have a moral opinion on it or not, she's an 80-something-year-old woman, and what she's remembering is that the time of her youth and of her prime was more lively than things are today. And yeah, you might get stabbed, <laughs> unfortunately. That you might still be stabbed. Um, mm-hmm. But the culture was a little more lively. And I think that's probably what she had in mind. Yeah, th- those were great decades, the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, for, for literary art, culture literature, and art, yeah. architecture, yeah. music. Um. I mean, people are complaining about the CIA, but it's great that they were promoting such things. What do they promote now? Hamilton or something? I mean... I don't know. I think they just, I think right, the CIA right now? Yeah. I think they're focused on like teaching their spies uh, Mandarin. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. And going on MSNBC. Yeah. But yeah. But I mean, they were promoting Jackson <laughs> Pollock and Louis Armstrong. And uh, they're worried about like, they're worried about like microchips in the South China Sea and like. Right. I mean, they all quant- have Havana syndrome too. Quantum computing and like yeah. tech stuff and. Yeah. Probably have long COVID. I, yeah, I hope they figure it out. Honestly. Well, yeah. I don't want, I don't want the, the East to. I don't want. Be careful. I don't want the East. <laughs> Do you foresee a kinetic war? No, not at all. I just see, 
I think we're in, the U.S. is in a good strategic position in a lot of ways. I don't think China is as strong as people on the right make them out to be for propagandic reasons. And I think we have a lot of allies in that region, and we still control most of international trade. You have to worry about like in investment in South America. You have to worry about Africa as a front for like another proxy war in the next decade or two but i mean really that i think it's it's an arms race technological arms race that's what i can as far as i can tell and i'm rooting for the u.s and i'm rooting for the cia to protect u.s tech industry and like would definitely like we have a better chance of a more free century if we're controlling we're on the leading edge of most of that technology that said we, there's already it's not to the extent of like chinese provinces but like it's already facial recognition, like in Union Depot in St. Paul, like mm-hmm. there's facial recognition. So, mm-hmm. so I don't want to be that American who falls into the to the um, that trap of thinking that we have some sort of pure freedom that you know Red China is threatening when without without recognizing that our own our own government has you know adopted and utilized lesser but still like similar tactics of social control yeah i mean i think the important thing is we have a tradition of freedom that we can leverage we do as long as people are literate well right yeah that's that's a problem (laughs) what do you think like this century people are so visually literate yeah but they're becoming less uh linguistically literate yeah and i that was actually something that came up in the norman mailer controversy was people are saying well people don't read norman mailer anymore and somebody was like well nobody reads literature anymore so who cares um and i did i had sort of a brutal thought there which is it doesn't really matter what the functionally illiterate think because the literate make the record that's true (laughs) to an extent i mean that's probably too mean but (laughs) yeah it, well, I mean, it's it's too Straussian. Yeah, probably is. Yeah. <laughs> I had a Straussian <laughs> moment to quote Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. Uh, <laughs> Straussian <laughs> moment. Peter Thiel's not funding this podcast, by the way, and I don't understand why he isn't. Um, yeah, well, maybe maybe he'll understand <laughs> I'm later. Sure, I'm sure he does. <laughs> for better, for worse. <laughs> but the thing about literacy is. Or um, I noticed today, like, here's my take on it, man, is that we're in a culture that, and even my parents who are voracious readers, like, they acknowledge, like, the ability and the benefits of reading have been diminished by what's available and what we've been forced to engage with for the majority of our time, most people, which is, like, social media, digital communications, visual culture, whatever, but what I've noticed is that any individual, myself included, who can summon like the willpower, the concentration, the dedication, and the time to really read, that's an advantage for people. Yeah. That's a very and it's gonna become it's gonna become an even bigger advantage in so many ways. Right. Yeah, and I so that's why you should keep hanging with us here because we'll help you <laughs> Yeah <laughs> read. Will arm you up right. and will sell supplements. Right. Yeah, no, I, I'm not a believer in the sort of Marshall McLuhan, like, relativization of 
well, the fragmented perception is its own kind of advantage. I don't actually think that's true. I think McLuhan was only able to write that book because he was marinated in literary culture. Um, it, it, literate, literacy is the meta text of all other media and all other texts. Uh, if you don't have it, you don't even know what the visual is. And I will say that it's something that can be lost. Yeah. Um, and atrophied. And that's, and we're in a moment right now where that's being enabled, that type of atrophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's going to be a problem. Um, I don't know what we're going to be able to do about it, but, um, I mean, there seems to be the, you know, ban- you know, the, the problem with education is all this got collapsed onto identity politics arguments, even though there's nothing to do with it. As I always say, if you can't read Dickens, you can't read Frederick Douglass. You know, if you can't read Faulkner, you can't read Toni Morrison. I mean, if you can't read fucking, um, <laughs> if you can't read Alexander Pope, you can't read Claudia Rankine. Right, exactly. Um, so it has nothing to do with the, I mean, by all means, just don't teach white men, just teach the great writers who aren't white men. If, if that's what you need to do, it's fine with me, but teach people how to read. They got it. Yeah. It's, it's so important and it's so good for the brain. And after I engage with the novel, any sort of text, and I put in that deliberate reading time afterwards, I, I feel altered, acted upon, improved, tuned in, sensitized, Mm -hmm. more able, more capable, better confidence in my own perceptions, better verbal um, deployment, increased apprehension of meaning and import. These are things worth, these are, these are things worth working for. Yeah. And they're not to take lightly. Mm Mm-hmm within a democracy. Yeah. Right, because the advantages you're describing aren't advantages directly related to the domain of reading and writing. They're, it forms a certain character, a certain intelligence that's not available any other way. 